title of this morning's lesson is, What is Wrong with Denominationalism? And the reason why I have picked this particular topic this morning is I believe that every now and then we need to be reminded that there are some things wrong with denominationalism. Uh, In the world that we live in today, it's even common among our own members to sometimes think uh, that there's really nothing wrong with denominationalism. Uh, We have friends and we have family members and others who are part of a mainstream denomination, and therefore we really don't think a whole lot about it. In fact, sometimes there are members of the Lord's Church who believe that we need to be more like the denomination so we can bring more people in. But I think it's important that we spend some time time talking this morning about what exactly is wrong with denominationalism. Uh, Also, I think it's important to our young people to make sure they understand as they grow up that uh, there is something wrong with denominationalism. I also think it's very important that in the politically correct society that we have today, that oftentimes we tend to overlook things that uh, the Bible very clearly teaches against uh, for the sake of being politically correct. And it's not our intent whenever we stand in this pulpit or as we live the Christian life Uh, to simply be politically correct for the sake of being politically correct. Instead, we want to stand for the truth and stand for God's Word. Now, almost every single person who is a member of this congregation, either during their generation or maybe previous generations, have more than likely left a mainstream denominational church and have come a part of this particular body. Oftentimes when I'm traveling, or maybe if I run into somebody in the community and they want to know the nature of the particular congregation that I'm uh, the preacher for, that oftentimes they'll ask me, they'll say, well, what kind of church is your church? And my first answer almost always is this, we are a group of people who are truth seekers. We know that Jesus says in John chapter 8 and verse 32, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And that's all we want to do. We want to find out what the truth is. And if we know the truth, then that's something we can stand on. And therefore, I always remind people when I first talk to them about what kind of church we are, I tell them that we have a group of individuals who during the course of their life, they were searching for truth. And as they searched through the truth of God's word, they discover that this is a place where they need to be. And we're so very thankful for each and every one of our members, and we're thankful for the fact that they have the kind of hearts that are always searching for truth. They want to know what God's will is and obey it. Now, as I discuss this particular topic this morning, it's going to be very um, to the point. Uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time in flowing theology and rhetoric, but just simply get to the point so it would be easy to understand and it's something you can easily remember. But at the same time, I'm going to make sure you understand and appreciate that I'm not attacking any individual whatsoever. I'm not attacking the sincerity of someone who is a part of a mainstream denomination. I'm not attacking the spirituality of that particular person. I'm not attacking uh, whether or not that uh, they believe in what they believe. But what I am trying to do today is just simply show you from God's Word 
And hopefully we can use God's Word and use some common sense and logic to appreciate the fact that there's something wrong with the denominational world. And what I mean by the denominational world is how if you look at the religious landscape that we live in today, depending on whose count you look at, you you can come up with a number of anywhere between 300 and 700 different denominations that hold different beliefs, that have different identifying marks that make them a specific denomination that's different from what we read about in God's Word. And that's all we're talking about today. We're not attacking anybody's character. Uh, We're not attacking anybody's uh, family heritage or anything like that. But we do hope everyone here today will have an open enough mind and put away some of their prejudgments and put away some of their prejudices and maybe put away some family tradition, if you will, and just simply look at what the Bible says and using some common sense and logic and appreciate the fact that there is something wrong with denominationalism. Instead, we need to be a part of the church that we read about in the New Testament. So let's look at just four points this morning, but four very important points. The very first thing I want you to think about this morning is this. When you ask the question, what is wrong with denominationalism, the very first thing that I think about is the fact that it is without scriptural authority. And what I mean by without scriptural authority is that nowhere in God's Word do we find any authority whatsoever for man-made denominations. Paul reminds us in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 17, he says, Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord. And that's not paying lip service to simply his name. What that means is, when someone says in the name of something, it means in the authority of. For example, we don't hear this phrase much anymore, but us older folks can remember how that if a policeman was chasing a bad guy down through the city streets, that oftentimes in the old movies and whatnot, uh, they would say, stop in the name of the law. That didn't mean just because his name was law that they needed to stop. They needed to stop because he was a policeman who had the authority of the law behind him. And so that's what Paul means in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 17, that everything that we do, as far as our practice, or everything that we teach, we need to do by the authority of Jesus Christ. Whatsoever you do in word or deed, you need to do by the authority of Jesus Christ. And so if we're going to find the basis for denominationalism, somehow or another, we've got to open up our Bibles and find some scriptural authority for it. But as we go through our New Testament, we can look and look and look, and we find the Bible to be as silent as a tomb when it comes to denominationalism. Nowhere in the New Testament is there ever a mention of denominations, never a mention of any other congregation of the Lord's people that was not simply the Lord's church. For example, as you read through God's Word, you find different churches meeting, but those different churches were just simply the Lord's church that was meeting at a specific location. For example, the church at Corinth, or the church at Antioch, or the church at Jerusalem. 
Never was there in the New Testament any designation of anybody being a part of some separate group that believed different from another separate group. Instead, they all believed the same, and they were all part of one church. On the day of Pentecost, when Peter preached that very first gospel sermon and the church had its beginning, the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 2 and verse 41 that many that received his word, in other words, his commands to repent and be baptized, they were then added to their number. And about 3,000 souls were saved that day. Well, what was that number that they were added to? Well, you get down to the end of the chapter in verse 47, and the text says, And the Lord added to the church daily such as would be saved. Every single member of the first century church were all members of the same church. There was no separate churches, the one denomination over here with a man's name and called something else, and another church over here that believed in one specific doctrine more greater than another doctrine, and that's another church. No, they were all members of the same church, the church that the Lord added to them as they were saved. And so once again, it's a very simple point, it's a very common sense point, but All we have to simply do is open up God's Word and we discover that nowhere in the New Testament do we read anything about far as names of denominational churches, as far as there being any denominational churches. Instead, there was just simply one church and every single member were a member of that church, even if they were living in different parts of the country. But now consider this second point. Denominationalism, and the reason why it's wrong, is it violates Bible teaching on unity. Now, in our first point, we brought out the fact that there's no scriptural authority for denominationalism. But here in this second point, we want to make the point that there is things in Scripture that is against denominationalism. For example, let's go to John chapter 17. If you don't mind, please open your Bibles to John chapter 17, and there we will see Jesus praying right before he died. Now, oftentimes, as we look at secular history and we look at a criminal being put to death, that we are interested in what his last words would be. Because usually, a person's last words before he dies or she dies are some of the most sincere, some of the most truthful And perhaps the thing that is on that person's mind the most. Now obviously Jesus was being put to death unjustly. He was not a criminal. He was a perfect man. But yet we find here in these words in John chapter 17, the last words of a dying man. Here is the last prayer Jesus prayed before he was hung on the cross. And I want you to look at what was on his mind if you look at Uh, verses 20 and 21 of John chapter 17. Notice what his prayer was, what he was pleading for, what he wanted to take place here on this earth. He says, beginning at verse 20, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Now what he's saying there, he had just got through uh, praying about those who would be the apostles, the ones who would be his advocates when he left this earth who would spread the gospel. And he says, I'm not just praying for them, but I want to pray for all those who would believe on their teaching. 
The words that I have taught the apostles to say, the people that would believe because of the apostles' teaching. He says, I'm praying for them too. Now listen to what he says about those who would believe one day. Verse 21, that they all may be one. As thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Now, he's making two requests here. The first request is that he wants all believers to be one. And that unity is a special kind of unity. The denominational world today tells us that this unity is just agreeing to disagree. But that flies right in the face of what Jesus is saying here. Because he gives us the standard for the unity that he's talking about. When he says, I want them to all be one, well, what do you mean by being one? Well, he defines us for us in the text. As you and I are one, Father, as thou art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. Now, not one time in Jesus' life here on this earth, not one time before Jesus left heaven and came to this earth, not one time after Jesus lived on this earth and went back to heaven and lived with his Father did they ever agree to disagree. Instead, they were always in unity on what they believed and what they did. That's the type of oneness that Jesus is talking about. It's not a type of, well, you believe whatever you want to believe, and I believe whatever I want to believe, even though they are contradictory, even though they can't possibly be correct. One of us has to be wrong, but we'll just agree to disagree. That's not the type of unity that Jesus is talking about, even though the rest of the denominational world tells us that's what unity is. But here's the second request. The reason why he wants the kind of unity that he wants is because of the latter part of verse 21 where it says that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. One of the most frustrating things as a Christian, one of the most frustrating things as a gospel preacher is to try to talk to someone about religion And they look at the world around us and they see all these different churches. They see one church on one corner that believes one thing, at least as far as how to be saved. Or they see another church on another corner who maybe believes something totally different about church or worship or something like that. And then they see another church that has a totally different name, a totally different belief. And somehow or another, all these contradictory beliefs, all these different people meeting in different places and believing different things are somehow or another supposed to get us to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. How frustrating is that? Because people look at the division of the religious world and they say, well, it must be just a bunch of junk because nobody can agree on anything. Well, folks, that's not what Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed that we all should be one, that we should be one and in total agreement as Father and Son were in agreement. And the reason for this is we want to save the world. The only way for the world to truly be saved and be one is to go back to the Bible and the Bible alone as our sole and final authority. As long as there's creed books out there, 
As long as there's catechisms out there, as long as there's church manuals out there, as long as there's book of prayers out there, where man has come up with their own system of religion and own orders and whatnot, and we stay away from just simply using the Bible and the Bible alone, there's always going to be religious division. Right here is the only key. If man would just simply go back to the Bible and the Bible alone and take all the man-made additions and subtractions away from it and simply try to be the church that we read about in the New Testament, this is the only way that this prayer is ever going to be answered. But I want you to look at another passage. This one over in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Notice the admonition as the church began to grow and as the human factor of it became more and more present, as the apostles began to get older and as they were dealing with different problems in the church, uh, we find the apostle Paul writing the church at Corinth and he's beginning to see a problem that's starting to develop in the religious world and that is that people are dividing themselves up into camps, into groups how that they want to follow a specific person's teaching instead of following the teaching of God's Word. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 10, the Apostle Paul says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name, there it is again, by the authority, I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Paul is warning them that we don't need to divide up into other groups, but to stay under the authority of Jesus Christ and be one unified group of the same mind and of the same judgment. Now, this doesn't mean, as he talks about divisions, that that's talking about somebody disagreeing with another person on those things that are non-essential or those things that perhaps there is some judgment involved. But what he's talking about here specifically is the dividing up into groups and following a certain teacher or picking sides, if you will. Because he goes on in verse 11, he says, For it has been declared unto me, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Now this is what he had heard. He's saying, you're starting to follow certain men and letting them be the head of your church. You're starting to say, well, my allegiance is to this preacher, or my allegiance is to this preacher, and I think that Paul is right on this thing, and I think Apollos is not right, or I think Apollos is right, and they're starting to choose sides of which preacher they think has it done down better. But notice Paul's response to this in verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were ye baptized in the name of Paul? But look what he's done here. Here at the ending, he has come full circle to verse 10 and the beginning of it. Where he says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name or the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. The thing that unites us is not one man's particular preaching and whether or not you think you should follow him. But the thing that unites us is the authority of Jesus Christ and His Word. 
That's the thing that will keep us unified. That's the thing that will stop divisions. When we start picking sides and think we're going to go off and follow some man because some man maybe has a better idea, whether it be in violation of God's Word or not, and I believe at this point in time there was no violation perhaps, it was the idea of choosing up sides. It was the idea of breaking apart from somebody else because they didn't quite agree with you on something else. The key that Paul wanted was by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ that there be no divisions among you. And so it's no wonder when Paul was writing the church at Ephesus over in Ephesus chapter 4, or Ephesians chapter 4, notice what he says beginning at verse 1. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness and longsuffering, forbearing one another in love. Here's the beginning key. We need to walk worthy. We need to be humble. We need to be meek. We need to be patient or longsuffering, forbearing one another. But this is what we need to be working on. Verse 3, endeavoring. This is what we're striving for, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Well, why do we need to do that, Paul? Well, he tells us beginning at verse 4, there is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, and one Lord, one faith, one baptism, One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Notice the oneness that are all expressed there here. Notice how it says there is one God and there is one Lord. And his point is, as sure as there is one God, God the Father, and as sure as there is one Lord, God the Son, Jesus Christ, well then surely it's the case that there is one faith. There is one body, and there is one baptism. In other words, the religious world can't tell us there's different types of faith. They can't tell us that there's different bodies all belonging to the body of Jesus Christ. They can't tell us that there are different types of baptism when only the Bible teaches of one baptism as far as the New Testament age is concerned and a person's salvation. We need to appreciate and understand that we need to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So the problem with denominationalism is it violates Bible teaching on unity. When we split the religious world up into three to seven hundred different denominations, how in the world any common sense, logical person can think that Christianity is the right religion when there is so much disunity? But here's another thing. The problem with denominationalism is it makes the Lord's church non-essential. Now think about that for a moment. How in the world does denominationalism make the Lord's church non-essential? Well, it does it simply by this. It's saying it doesn't matter which church you belong to, It doesn't matter what religious body you're a part of. You just make the church of your choice. And here's the reason why they say that. It's all based upon this particular premise. 
that a person is saved and then a person joins the church. That a person is saved first and then later on they make a decision about joining a church. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to attend, for example, a Billy Graham crusade. I've never attended one, but I've talked to those who have. And, of course, sometime during this great stadium that's full of people, uh, years ago when he was younger and able and he would extend the invitation, he would tell people to come down to the front and be saved. And after they were saved to his prescribed way of being saved, what they would do is they would have ushers who would usher them to, into the back of the auditorium or the coliseum or the arena. And there back there would be different booths set up of all the different mainstream denominations and you were allowed then to choose the church that you want to be a member of. Now I simply bring that up not to belittle Billy Graham's crusade, but to point out the fact that the denominational world has the idea that a person is saved and then... They are added to a church somewhere. But that is foreign to what the Bible teaches. Nowhere does the Bible teach that. In fact, the passages passages that we've already brought out in Acts chapter 2, when Peter was preaching there on the day of Pentecost, and he told them what they needed to do in order to be saved in verse 38. The text says in verse 41, And they that gladly received his word were then added to the church. They didn't make a choice. The Lord added to them to the church. In fact, that is emphasized in verse 47. That it's the Lord that adds you to the church. You don't pick a church to join. When a person becomes a Christian, they are automatically added to the church. But the denominational world says that really the church is a non-essential. That a person can be saved and never really be a member of a church anywhere. In fact, it's interesting, our... Uh, friends in the Baptist church, and once again, this is not something to belittle them or attack their sincerity or spirituality, but they believe wholeheartedly that a person can be saved without ever being a member of the Baptist church, but in order to be a member of the Baptist church, you have to be voted on and accepted to be a part of that particular church. A person is saved and can go to heaven, but they can't be a part of the Baptist church unless they've been voted on or accepted by that church. In other words, and I mean this a little tongue-in-cheek, but it's still the case that it's easier to get into heaven than it is to get into the Baptist church. My point is the denominational world has made the church a non-essential. But the passage that Michael read for us a few moments ago from Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18 Jesus Christ very clearly said, I will build my church. Acts 20 and verse 28 says that Jesus Christ purchased the church with His own blood. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 22 and 23 reminds us that we are all members of His body, which is the church. Jesus Christ has a church that He built, Jesus Christ has a church that He bought. Jesus Christ has a church which is His body. And I would not want to be the man who says that that body, blood-bought, built church is non-essential. A person who is a Christian, who has been baptized and obeyed the commands that are written here in this book to become a Christian, they automatically become 
a member of the Lord's church. It is not our choice, but instead it is Christ's choice which church we are a member of. And one final point, and here's my biggest problem with denominationalism, and that is it teaches salvation different from what the Bible teaches. If you were to look at almost every single mainstream denominational church manual or church handbook or catechism or whatever, they almost universally teach this particular idea, that a man is saved by faith only. That all a person has to do is simply believe, and that takes care of their salvation. Now, we appreciate and understand that it's a person's faith that saves a person in the sense that a person has to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We appreciate the fact that there's nothing we can do to earn our salvation. No matter how many commands we may obey in God's Word, just because we obey those commands does not give us the merit or the deserving of salvation. It is all by the grace of God, and it's all predicated by faith. With that being said, though, the Bible is very clear that a person is not saved by faith only. In fact, if you were to look in your Bible, there's only one passage in the entire Bible that even uses the phrase faith only. That's found in James chapter 2 and verse 24. And James very clearly says that a person is not, did you hear that? Is not saved by faith only. The only time that phrase faith only appears, James says a person is not saved by faith only. So there must be something that is expected of someone who wants to be saved. It doesn't mean that it earns them anything. It's still predicated upon their faith in Jesus Christ, but yet there's something more than just simply believe. Earlier in the chapter of James chapter 2, it talks about how that the devils believe, but yet they're lost. Just belief doesn't save you. So it's no wonder we open up our Bibles, which is our final authority, and we see in Mark 16, 16, where Jesus says, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, and he that believeth not shall be damned. Now notice what the text says. As sure as two and two equals four, so does belief and baptism equal salvation. Now I understand that somebody looks at the last part of the verse and says, well, it just says believe not in the latter part of the verse. Well, all you've got to do is use some common sense and realize that if you take the two out of the equation and remove it, and have plus two equals four, that's not a correct statement any longer. If you remove one component out of it, there's no need to remove the other component out of it. And when you think about the fact that every single time that we do anything as far as our salvation is concerned is predicated upon our belief, you understand why Jesus simply said, and he that believeth not shall be uh, damned. But Jesus did say two plus two equals four, or he that believeth, and is baptized, shall be saved, he meant what he says. But the denominational world tells it like this. He that believeth shall be saved. 
In other words, two equals four. He that believeth shall be saved. And then a little bit later on, because of an outward sign of an inward faith, that person can be baptized. Well, that messes up the whole equation. You've got two equals four, and then add two more to it later on. Simple math, it just doesn't work. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Romans chapter 3 and verses uh, 3 and 4, it talks about how that those of us who have been buried with Christ, have been buried, or dead to sin, have been buried to Christ, and then rise to walk in newness of life. Once again, if you look at the denominational view of this, a person is dead to sin, they rise to walk in newness of life, but then later on they're baptized because they want to show everybody that they believe in what they have, uh, uh, have done, or this is an outward sign of their faith. But once again, that's foreign to what the Bible teaches. Beginning at the beginning of the book of Acts, where the church began, and going all the way to the very last example we have of someone being saved in the book of Acts, we always find this case. For example, in the beginning, in Acts chapter 2 and verse 36, when the apostle Peter is preaching that first gospel sermon, he came to the invitation He said, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made this same Jesus whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. And it says when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? How can we save ourselves? And Peter told them to repent. You see an equation. To repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. Two plus two equals four. But then you go all the way to the end of the book of Acts. The last time we have an event recorded, and it's a retelling of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, who would become the Apostle Paul. And you remember how Saul was on the road to Damascus, and he saw the resurrected Lord. If there's ever someone who knew that Jesus was alive and resurrected and believed of Him, it was the Apostle Paul who was then called Saul. And he asked the Lord, he says, Lord, what will you have me to do? The Lord didn't say, well, you believe in me. You don't have to do anything else. Don't you know it's faith only? No, the Lord Himself told him to go into the city, and it will be told unto you what you need to do. You see, there's something more than just simply faith only. And sure enough, a preacher showed up by the name of Ananias in Acts 22 and verse 16. What did Ananias tell Paul? He says, And why now tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Wait a minute, preacher. You're trying to tell me I still got my sins? I believe. Don't you believe in faith only? Well, evidently Ananias didn't. Because he told Paul that he was still in his sins. Until he was baptized, he still had his sins, regardless of how much faith he had. Listen to it again, Acts 22 and verse 16. And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. A person needs to be baptized in order to be saved. That, of course, is predicated upon their faith. It's predicated upon their repentance. It's predicated upon their confession. But each and every case of New Testament conversion, it always ended with baptism. And so the problem I have with denominationalism is teaching literally thousands and perhaps millions of people not enough 
when it comes to what the Bible teaches as far as a person being saved. All we're saying this morning as we come to a conclusion is that we're not belittling any other religious organization. We're not attacking anybody's sincerity or spirituality. But yet at the same time, we should be interested in what the truth is. We should be interested in what Jesus Christ tells us. We should be interested in finding in our Bibles and being able to point to it and say, well, there it is, that must be the case. Instead of relying upon tradition, instead of relying upon councils, instead of relying upon conventions deciding things for us, instead of we as individuals, because it's going to be our own souls that will stand before God one day on the judgment day, and do our own soul searching, and do our own scripture searching, be our own truth truth seekers, and discover that denominationalism is foreign to God's word. But instead, when a person became a Christian in the New Testament, they were simply members of the church of the New Testament. What church was Peter a member of? What church was Paul a member of? What church was John a member of, or the eunuch a member of, or the Philippian jailer a member of, or Lydia a member of? That's the church I want to be a member of. I don't want to be a member of the church that has some man's name attached to it or a member of a church that has uh, even some religious figure attached to it or some church that has some particular belief attached to it. But I just simply want to be a, a New Testament Christian. I don't need to be called anything else. I can just simply be called a Christian and simply be a part of the church we read about in the New Testament. And I tell you what, that's just fine with me. Because I know I'm on safe ground then. If I was a member of anything else, I might have to question it in some way. There might always be an inkling in the back of my mind. Well, you know, I don't know for sure, but I can always be right when I know I'm in God's Word because God's Word is always right. If you have a need this morning, I don't want to take up any more of your time, but if there's some way we can help you as you respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ or for the need of prayers or some other need, We want you to come as together we stand and sing.